Today, because of the nature of what is happening, I feel that I must talk about the subject of sin, the subject of forgiveness, and the subject of judgment. There is such a thing as a spiritual graves robber. Now, that spiritual graves robber could be one of two people. It could be some other person who knows something about you, or he could be you yourself who knows something about someone else. And I think that we are dealing with an actual law that I want to address a little bit as we go through some of the scriptures on the subject. Let's look at the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. There's a very grave misconception about this business of judgment. And you really think about the Protestant explanation of the great last judgment day, and they must have taken it from the 20th chapter of Revelation, beginning in verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. And, of course, that's a parenthetical inset. This, meaning verse 4, this picture of the thrones, is the first resurrection. It goes on a little later on in verse 11 to describe a second great resurrection. And, of course, on the last day following the festival, we always rehearse this scripture, and we call that the great white throne judgment day because we know that's what it pictures. I saw a great white throne. Now, from this vision of John's comes the Protestant idea of this interminable long line of countless millions of human beings, and they are coming up before this great judge who looks like a divinized father figure in a huge white throne with a great, maybe, gold gavel in his hand, and maybe there are angels there and a boiling cauldron over here in the trap door, and you stand there, and all of these clerics, all of these angels have these huge books and they look through these books, and they search through there, and they say, Aha! Oh, ghastly! <gasps> look at that! And they're chuckling about it and passing it on to another. And maybe the Lord is there, and he looks at it, and he says, I can't believe that! Wait a minute! Uh, look back three pages. And they're going through this book, and they're discovering what this poor trembling person standing before the docket has done in his life. And if the bad outweighs the good, a gleeful demonic demon of some sort pulls this big lever over there, and the trap door opens up, and, and this person goes down, and next, you know, and then the next one is standing there trembling. And We one time tried to portray that on a television program we did on the whole subject of heaven and hell and immortality of the soul, and we had a, a very fine graphics department, including some animation cartoonists, and they actually gave us the animation of the judge and the angels and the, the uh, trap door and the people going down to hell. Now, a lot of you grew up in a Protestant church, and you've been in maybe a Pentecostal or a, a Baptist or a Church of Christ service many times in your life. And isn't the idea that I just portrayed pretty much what got into your mind as a little kid? That every time you do something, whether you cuss or you drink or you smoke or you do something really bad, it is the most unbelievable clerical job going on up in heaven that you could ever imagine. Somebody up there, your own private clerk, an angelic clerk that sees every dirty thing you ever did, including picking your nose, driving along the freeway in your automobile, is up there carefully jotting it all down. 
And there is going to come a day when your sin will find you out. Isn't that what the ministers say? Isn't that what you've heard? Aren't you made to think that every evil thing you've ever done is someday going to be thrown up to you by many of the religious types, including, I think, a lot of people in the WCG have pretty much felt that way. But now, wait a minute. Is that really true? This business about these great books up there being kept on your life. I read a lot. I try to write a lot. You know, you can take a story about someone's life from, say, 12 noon until 12 midnight, and you can write a book that thick, you really could, of small print, thousands of pages. If you did everything they thought and said and did, all of the other people involved, and flashbacks and inputs from other personalities and other conversations, a little bit about their life and so on, it depends on the scope and the breadth of this book that you're writing as to how in-depth, how deeply you wish to probe into this 12-hour span of a person's life. On the other hand, in the six, first six chapters of Genesis is one-sixth of all the world's history. From the beginning of creation, and even pre-creation, until the time of the Noatian deluge. Only a few verses. God just didn't want to go into it that deeply. There can be a book that big, and it's a biographical statement of a whole person's life. And on the other hand, no one person's life, including a poor Vietnamese rice paddy farmer, could really be contained in the entire Encyclopedia Britannica. It would take much more to write it all up if you wrote everything they ever thought and felt and said and did. It would be a vast effort. We are, right now, under judgment. Now, what is judgment? Judgment is not a sentencing. Sentencing comes after the trial. Judgment is the trial process. It is the collection of data, the accumulation of depositions, testimony, facts. It is a person, in the person of a judge, and maybe in our system a jury, maybe the lawyer for the, the plaintiffs and the lawyer for the defense, and they are sitting there and they are accumulating evidence. Now, you are being judged right now today, and I am too. I was being judged last night, judged this morning, I'm being judged right now, I'll be judged in my conversation after the Sabbath services are over. So are you, and so will you, so have you been. But what kind of a judge would you like to preside at your judgment? If you were going to be hailed into court, and I have been there, and it's a very, very unpleasant experience, even if you know and you feel that the right is on your side and you have every encouragement from the attorney and you really sort of know in advance, I'm going to come out of this all right. Right is on my side. I'm going to win the case. You can't help but feel very apprehensive, very frightened, because you think, what if that judge got up on the wrong side of the bed this morning? What if that judge's wife has been a real, real uh, kind of a Tasmanian devil here for the last two or three days? Uh, what if he's got a, a sort of a bleeding ulcer? What if he's a little ill? Uh, what if he doesn't feel good? And you really worry, what kind of a judge am I going to have? 
Well, you know, the Bible says a lot about that, and I won't stand here and attack the entire judicial system, although I feel like it sometimes. But the Bible talks about the unrighteous judge, and Jesus said, Woe unto you lawyers. And there are many chapters, and one of the most fruitful of all is the 59th chapter of Isaiah. There is no judgment in their doings. That justice is falling into the street. There is no justice. There is no judgment. And for the little people, the poor people, the minority people, the jobless, the people who are being steamrolled in the streets by the federal bureaucratic juggernaut, that is so absolutely true today, and you know it, and I know it. And we see the spectacle of people with uncounted millions of dollars. I'm not going to try Cullen Davis. I don't have to. It was all in the newspapers, television, and the printing press, and so on. And they tried him in a couple of different courts of law. But I will make a statement. I happen to believe that statement that you can be guilty in this country of mass murder. And if you have enough money, you can get away with it. You can be guilty of the most monstrous crimes, of gigantic theft and embezzlement and corporate chicanery. You can be guilty of ripping off huge organizations. You can steal millions of dollars. And if you've got enough money, and enough lawyers, enough law firms, and you can pay them enough millions, you can get away with it. That's the system in which we live. And the Bible says there is no real judgment and justice in this earth. What kind of a judge would you want if it was your day in court and the issue at stake were the sins committed in your life? I know what the answer to that is in your case and mine, I think, but we need to think about that. And then we need to think about the day when we are going to be in that same position, when we are going to be asked to come from the audience and mount up behind the dais and the little balustrade there and walk up and put on the black robe and sit down. Now it's our turn, and we are the judge, and some poor frightened soul is standing there. Now, at that point of time in our life, I would hope, I certainly hope in my case, that I would have learned the lesson long years ago that when some poor, hapless, frightened, beleaguered person is standing in front of me, wanting the right of it, wanting to be able to tell his whole story, the way he really felt, the way it really was, why he did this or that, what were the motives, what were the compulsions that drove him, what were all the psychological inputs? What were the other pressures upon him? That he would have an opportunity during his day in court to be judged by a judge who was fair, who was objective, not subjective, not bigoted, not prejudiced, not racist, not with his mind already made up in advance, I don't like that guy's looks. He's black, or he's yellow, or he's reddish, or he's brown, and therefore he's a minority and I can't stand those people. Whatever the inputs are, what kind of a judge would you like? That's the kind of a judge that you should be. Now, you know, over in 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, the Apostle Paul talked about, I have judged already, and talked about judging concerning an evil sin in the congregation, and finally said, don't know you not. He said, when you have a judgment, when you have a problem in the church, do you set those which are least qualified in the church to judge? He said, Know you not, we shall judge angels. That the ultimate calling of a Christian when we are born of God is to actually judge the actions of angelic spirit beings. That's in the Bible, the Word of God. Not only to judge human actions, but to judge angels. 
So what is this judgment period? It's a whole lifelong period of time in which we are being judged. Now what judges us? The Word of God. Over and over again we're told that in the Psalms and the Proverbs by Jesus Christ who said, For judgment am I coming to the world. We know that the word for Bible is books, biblos. The only thing that is holy about it is when they add the word holy books or holy scriptures. So therefore, if you look at the 20th chapter where we were, Revelation the 20th chapter and verse 12, when it says, I saw the dead and the books were opened, in Greek the word is really the biblos were opened. That is the word that is translated books. And another biblia or biblo book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged not out of the book of life. That is a book which is waiting for the entry. That is a ledger which doesn't have any notations in it as yet, except those whose names are written there when they repent, they're baptized, and they receive God's Holy Spirit, and they are, as it says in the Bible, their lives are hid with Christ in God. Then their names are added to the book of life. Our names are already there and written there if we have repented and received God's Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that it's a decision that is already a fait accompli or a past act. It is a closed decision. What judges us today? The Biblos, the Bible, the Word of God. God says, I change not, therefore are you sons of Jacob not consumed. It says in Hebrews 13.8 that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Is Christ going to change the method of judgment during the great white throne judgment period? No, he is not. People are going to have an entire lifespan during which they will be judged in exactly the same fashion as we are during our lifespan. Now, how are we judged? When God goes about judging us, how does he do it? How does he judge? Does he have a big book there that is like a diary and he continually keeps track of every little action that you ever purport to, in any way, assume a thought, some sort of a compulsion, a temptation, something that you do, whether you actually get right down into a street fight with someone, whether you're a brawler in one of the honky-tonks, whether you've stolen, whether you've robbed, whatever you've done, does God very carefully have an angelic clerk, or maybe several of them? Some of us probably keep four, five, or eight of those poor angels so busy they wear out a ton of pencils a week, just keeping track of all we do. And then when the judgment day comes, we're going to march up there and they're going to Peel off this great big seal on this book and show us every rotten, evil thing we have ever done. Is that the way it works? Not according to Jesus Christ of Nazareth, it isn't. I want you to turn to one of the most important psalms in the Bible, in Psalm 103 and verse 10. Psalm 103 and verse 10. David says something that I find to be, if you don't understand it correctly, you would think it's almost a contradiction in the Bible. Well, it's not. It is a contradiction to many sermons I've heard. It's a contradiction to the idea a lot of Protestant ministers have given people about this judgment day and the way God judges and the kind of a judge he is. God is not a harsh monster judge sitting in his heavenly armchair with a bag of lightning bolts waiting to zap the poor helpless Christian who doesn't live up to the way he, God, thinks that person ought to live. I think a lot of people are going to find with a very great gasp of amazement that God Almighty is much more forgiving than he has been portrayed to them by religious type people. Some of the most unforgiving people I have ever known are religious type people. I've said for 25 years on a radio, 
you better watch some of these religious fanatics, because you can get close enough to some of them that you can get yourself killed. Well, I was saying that back in the 50s and the 60s and the early 70s. And here, of course, just last year, a whole shocked world lived vicariously through the horror of Jonestown in Guyana. And here were 900 people in an incredible murder-suicide spree that took their lives or killed each other because of all of this business of religion, of the idea of a group that fled from this country because they were being allegedly persecuted, when in fact their leader had already repudiated the Bible, repudiated Christ and religion, had degenerated into a cultic, charismatic leader of a group of absolutely doltish, zombie-like followers who had totally given into his hands their minds, their will, their reason, their property, and their very lives. He was their God. They had no other attachments. Everything that they thought of concerning the life after this death, the death that is coming, and the life ahead, was through that leader over there underneath that portico. You saw pictures of it sitting by the big vat of bubbling poison. Their lives were inextricably interwoven and intermeshed with his life. Their lives had been given into his life, and his life was their life. What happened to him was going to happen to them. If he committed suicide, so should they. Because dad, as they called him, should not be allowed to die alone. Pitiful that people can get to the place that they give their entire lives and minds into the hands of someone else. In Psalm 103, verse 1, Bless the Eternal, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Eternal, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Now, I believe that there is a, I believe there's an exception to that statement that I want to show you. I think that it's true, but I think you are capable of making an exception to that scripture. That's not a blanket scripture. It is so long as you, yourself, never become a spiritual grave robber. If you become a spiritual graves robber, I think you instantaneously create a shadow. And I think every time you stick the shovel in the soil and you dig up a shovel full of somebody else's sin, immediately behind you is a little will-o'-the-wisp, a little hidden, unseen, shadowy character, just like you are, and he has just stuck a big shovel into that dung heap of your sins. And every shovel full of garbage that you dig up on someone else, he's digging up on you. And I think it is a law, and I think it is a principle, it is active, it's living, it's alive, and when you do it, it's going to be done to you. If you dare to tread underfoot the sacred blood of Jesus Christ on a blood-soaked robe gambled over by Roman soldiers so many years ago, who died because of the sins of all of humankind and died to give men mercy, and to give men compassion and kindness and gentleness and goodness and understanding and to give them forgiveness toward each other. When you become hard and unresilient, when you become a bigoted, unrighteous person who is a biased, bigoted judge whose mind is made up in advance, and you begin to dish out hatred and contempt and unforgiveness, your shadow's back there, and he's digging up hatred and contempt and unforgiveness. I think you have the power to make this scripture live in your life or to unearth a living principle and to give life to a little shadow 
who's going to dog your steps the rest of your life until you repent and you begin to become forgiving once again. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who heals all thy diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Eternal executes righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He has made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Eternal is merciful and gracious, are we, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy, are we. He will not always chide, are we that way? Neither will he keep his anger forever. What about us? Oftentimes when we argue with loved ones, those words are the stock in trade. There's a, ga- a book that I haven't quite read yet that I want to so badly about the games people play. The yes but. And all these various games that we play with each other. You always say it that way. You never do it that way. Really? But that's the way we are with each other. Why do you always, how come you never, we do it continually? The eternal God does not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. Now notice verse 10. It's almost an anomaly, isn't it? He hath not dealt with us after our sins. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Is that true in your case? In my case, if he had dealt with me according to my sins, they'd have thrown the key away. I'd have had a striped sunshine. They'd have had a pipe sunlight to me. I'd have been under the dungeon years ago. Before I ever got out of the Navy, they'd have slapped me in jail. Because, you see, God's law, God's Ten Commandments, demands the death penalty for even hating somebody, cursing someone made in the image of God. God's law says that our lives were forfeit. Now, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to really conjure up something that gives you a bad dream, so I'll try to pass over it quickly. The other day in Iran, you hear what they did? Those Muslims up there? They stoned some people to death. Do you know how they did it? You always get the concept standing somebody against the wall, a bunch of people throwing rocks. Oh, no. Somehow this bothered me worse than that. No, they dig a pit, and that pit is about shoulder high. And they stick that person down there with their arms at their side and they tamp the dirt in and pack it down so the person can't move. And just this much of them showing. And then they back off and start throwing rocks. And they stoned, I think, seven or eight, I forget, in public to death the other day in Iran. Now, God's Old Testament, Old Covenant judgment was death by stoning for sins every one of us have committed. You let that just get right down to the bottom of your heart and your mind and think about it a minute. And then look at verse 10 and agree with it. He hath not dealt with us after our sins. Do we want him to? Do we want him to deal with others according to their sins? I don't. I don't want to see that. I mean the world's worst rottenest sinner. If they had him waiting on death row, I don't want to be there when they drag him those last steps screaming and yelling to that little green room and that electric chair. I don't want to see it. I don't want to know about it. I don't want to participate in it. I don't even want to read about it. I'll I'll turn off the television set before I'll let documentaries of that nature into my mind. It bothers me. I don't want to be a participant. I don't want justice for everybody. I want forgiveness for everybody. I want repentance for everybody. And I want people to have what God has given me. He's given me not 
what I deserved, but what Jesus Christ offered me freely. Not what I earned, but what God grants through his grace and unmerited pardon. He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is removed from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pities his children, so the eternal pities them that fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're just dirt. Now that's a very comforting scripture. When I smoked years ago, and I smoked for eight years, it wasn't because my mind told me to smoke, it was because my fingertips told me to smoke. I had a habit, and that habit gave me the desire, and that desire was a narcotic effect on my entire capillary system, and whenever I got up in the morning, my body needed that because I was hooked on it, and so, of course, I'd reach for the cigarette the first thing before I pile out of bed. The eternal God knows our circulatory system, our muscular and skeletal system, our digestive system, our nervous system. He knows that we're just a series of fleshly appetites. He knows that we spend most of our lives caring for ourselves. He knows that our concern is for self-preservation, self-justification, self-determination, self-perpetuation, that it is self-centered, total selfishness, that it's ego, that it is concentration on the, the body, the appetites, feelings, the various sensory perceptions, the five channels by which everything we can come to know comes flowing into our minds is through a sensory process, not necessarily a spiritual one until God begins to add a spiritual dimension to our lives. When we're hungry, it sets up an appetite. That can become a craving, it can become so keen and so acute that we claim we're starving to death. It can be some, become so keen and so acute that a normally civilized human being can be converted or perverted into a savage who will resort to cannibalism in less than seven days. It's happened in the modern 20th century. It happened when a Fairchild 727 went down on a high, uh, out very high mountain uh, glacier up in... Chile, between Chile and Argentina, only a few years ago, and there was an extensive article in National Geographic about it, something like 30 or 40 people, of which only eight survived, and the survivors ate the others. That happened in the late 1960s or early 70s. It happened aboard the old ship Essex when a huge whale caused the Essex to sink and the survivors in the lifeboat. It was an epic story and how the person that went back to his uh, whaling port up in Massachusetts finally went insane because of what his mind did to him, because they resorted to cannibalism. It happened in the prison camps of World War II. It happens in warfare. We are a sensory perception. We are a sensory collection of various impulses and inputs through appetites. Those appetites are normally under control because we continually feed them. We please them. We care for them. Sometimes they become out of control and they begin to control us. Now, when God knows our frame, and he knows that we're just dust, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows us through and through, backwards and forwards, in and out. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Eternal is from everlasting to everlasting on them that fear him. And his righteousness unto his children's children, to whom? To such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments, and do 
them. So there's an if, isn't there? It's a group of select people who keep his covenant and those that remember his commandments and those who do them. There can be exceptions made. Over in the Sermon on the Mount, in the seventh chapter of the book of Matthew, Jesus says, the famous statement, so many have quoted, Judge not, that you be not judged. And then follows this great living principle. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. I know of cases of recent note where on the most tenuous evidence, third-party hearsay, Whole lives have been smashed into smithereens. Lives that go back of a history in the Church of God of 25 years and more. Dedicated lives. Lives where families and businesses and homes were given up and given into the Church. And on the basis of hearsay, a person whose turn it was to sit in the docket behind the big white throne with a big gavel in his hand had opportunity to listen, to get the facts, to judge righteous judgment. But he didn't. Instead, it was bigoted, it was biased, it was harsh and angry, unresilient. It was all predetermined and prejudged with prejudice, which is what prejudice is. Making up your mind in advance. Don't bother me with the facts. I'm angry. My ego must be vindicated. Therefore, look out, all ye helpless, suffering people, because I, the judge, am going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. But the instant that occurred, there appeared behind the scenes, unreasoned and unknown by those present at that scene, that little vicious shadow. And the little monster, he walked over to a dung heap and he stuck his shovel in there, just about as deep as his ankle, and he started to turn over. And he just kept digging. And you know, I think that would happen to me if I did that. And I think it would happen to you if you did it. Because I think it's a living law. I think as long as I keep forgiving others and asking God to forgive me, I will have what I ask. I think the instant with the tab that I would have had had those clerical angels been keeping records all that time, that I forget that I was purged from my old sins. And I think myself righteous and clean and pure. And I come down on some poor person who comes to me for understanding and for mercy. And I come down on them like a ton of bricks. I think I create a little shadow. And I think he takes a big shovel full of garbage. And I think he stands there ready to smear it all over my face. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why do you behold the mote that is in your brother's eye, but consider not the plank, the beam, that is in your own eye? Or how will you say to your brother, let me pull that mote out of your eye, and behold this great big sliver, this big plank is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first cast the beam out of your own eye, and then you shall see clearly to cast the mote out of your brother's eye. You know, this principle of Jesus Christ of Nazareth on judging, on discerning, on dispensing mercy is to me an absolute living law. I want to turn to Romans, the eighth chapter, and show you in conclusion here a very important principle to stand on our own two feet, to think for ourselves, and to have our attachment direct 
to Jesus Christ. No bifurcation whatsoever doesn't come through me or some organization with seals and badges and charts and blue ribbons and letterhead and staples and paper clips, because all that is just so much mammon and trash and of this world. But if you trust directly in Jesus Christ of Nazareth himself, he will never disappoint you. He will never turn on you. He will never let you down. He will never dig up your sins. Human beings? Now that's another matter. They'll do it to you every time. Here in the middle of the eighth chapter, beginning in verse 24, we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why would he yet hope for it? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities, for we know not what should we pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts, he knows that we're dust and he knows our frame, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that, are, that love God and to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those that he predetermined or predestined to be called, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified, that is, rectified or removed all past guilt. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God, not the corporation, not Garner, Ted, or anybody else, if God be for us, who can be against us? And what difference does it make? Is God for you? I think he is, if you want him to be. And all you have to supply is the desire. You want God to be for you. You have it, if you want it. Who can be against you? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us everything? Verse 33, very vastly important scripture. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? No one. It is God that justifies. You know, you can get rid of physical fat. You can even get rid sometimes of certain poisonous things that come into your mouth. There are various antidotes that you can have. Antidotes, you can, not anecdotes, but antidotes. You can look on the bottle and it'll tell you maybe take... Uh, an egg and mix it in warm water and put some soda in it or something and get that down try to force yourself to vomit. And there are various things you can do to get poison out of your body. But you know, if you have been forgiven and then you gradually drift into a situation where you are no longer one of God's elect, you put yourself outside the scripture in Romans 8. You no longer have that security. You no longer have the guarantee that God has removed your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. He will never mention them to you again. They're buried forever. We human beings tend to collect knowledge of evil. Even among and between people, the same families and people over loved ones, we oftentimes have this little secret drawer that we have labeled past sins. And sort of like a lot of our drawers are at home, where we've long since put a lot of notes in our pocket, and old uh, credit card slips, and various little telephone notes, and letters, and cards, and just paraphernalia and junk 
old shoestrings and buttons and some loose coins and some stuff that goes back about 10 or 12 years. Some of our drawers look about that way. They're sort of, we call them junk drawers. Well, now, if you picked out your junkiest junk drawer and every old item in there, from an old beat-up egg beater to a spatula to an old rusty fork to a button, maybe, maybe it's a Wendell Wilkie button. Maybe it even goes back that far. If you think about that junk drawer being the sins of other people, do you do that to other people in arguments? When you're discussing someone else, you pull out the junk drawer and sort through there and say, well, I remember when she did that. Or I remember, oh, yeah, now this event, the time they did that. Oh, boy, oh, wait till I get down here and get, really get a juicy one to tell you about. Now, if you do that, if you've got a junk drawer of all these sins of other people, poof, you created a little rotten ghost behind you. And he turns around and he's got a junk drawer that looks like a great big double barrel double-decker reefer truck. I mean, that thing is so big, it looks like half of a train reaching from Chicago to Detroit. And he starts, he, he gets all the way, all he can see is his rear end. He, only his heels are visible, digging up all this garbage on you. And every time you reach into your junk drawer and you talk about somebody else's sins, that little character is reaching into your junk drawer and throwing sins all over your face. I think it's a living principle. Maybe you can just disagree with me. Say, I don't think that's right. I don't think God does it that way. I've seen it work. I know he does it that way. It is a law. It works that way. If you do not forgive, he won't forgive you. And you can be forgiven now, and you can be forgiven next year, and ten years from now. And ten years from now, you can turn around and become unforgiving, and everything that happened ten years ago comes right out of the ground like a mushroom. He'll resurrect it. Because God says some people have gotten to the place that they, were, they forgot that they were purged from their old sins. So it is God who justifies, and who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He is the counsel for the defense. Satan the devil is the counsel for the prosecution. Satan, the devil, continually before the docket in heaven, says, Guilty. You ought to consign him to Gehenna fire. Lord, Jesus says, No, Father, I have forgiven. It took my blood. Forgive that person. The Bible portrays Satan, the devil, as the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before his throne day and night. As long as you're the victim, as long as you're the innocent party, as long as it's the devil who's doing the accusing, you're fine, you're in good shape. But the instant you start doing the devil's work for him, you've got yourself a little ghost digging into the manure pile behind you. Because the minute you start accusing other people, you are doing the devil's work for him. He's the accuser of the brethren. You're not supposed to be. The devil's busy enough accusing you and accusing other people without you joining in and giving him a hand. So you just don't do it. And then that little spook won't be digging in the dung pile. And your sins will be forgotten. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? See if you can read the corporation in there somewhere. I can't. I read it again this morning. I couldn't find it. It says to me, as I read it, in verse 20, uh, 38, For I am persuaded that neither death, that means your death, my death, or somebody else's death, or the death of all of us, nor life, living creatures, persons, or things, nor angels, good or bad, principalities, that's state, local, county, federal, powers, that's governments, forces, energies, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able 
to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Addendum. Comment. Yes, there is one thing who can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can. Only you. Not the devil, not angels. God won't. But you can. And any time you turn around and pull open your secret drawer or dig the shovel in the ground, that's when you do it. That's when you cancel out that beautiful 103rd Psalm. That's when you cancel out all these scriptures about forgiveness. That's when your forgiveness goes straight down the drain. Now you put the shovel full back. Throw the shovel away. Go burn it. Then go and get on your knees and say, Father, I'm sorry. I should never have begun to mess around with old sins that other people committed. Please forgive me for that. He'll still forgive you. But just remember, it's a law. So don't create any ghosts because they'll plague you for the rest of your life. <laughs>